0: With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, it's Rob
1: again, and we have another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast, and I have another great guest Today, who's the MD and CEO of Passerius Mining, a diversified and multi-jurisdiction West African-focused gold production, development, and exploration company? They have a couple of a uh, couple of operations in Ghana and Côte d'Ivoire, producing over 500,000 ounces per year um, and maximising shareholder returns. So, I want to welcome Jeff Quatermain. How you doing, Jeff?
2: Yeah, pretty good, thanks.
1: That's good to hear appreciate your time for um, taking the time to do this podcast. Um, I just want to kick off telling, telling us a little bit about how you got into the industry from obviously from when you graduated, how you've uh, moved, have your Chris moved along, um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about precious mining, um, and I've got some questions to uh, ask you. So, um, yeah, fire away.
2: Yeah, well, okay. I mean, uh, it's I guess it's been a bit of an interesting journey in a sense. I. Um, I uh, first started off uh, as a civil engineer. I did civil engineering straight out of university, and spent a number of years in design and uh, project management, things of that nature. Um, you know, like a lot of uh, young guys of my age, I, at that that time, I uh, I thought I would uh, wanted to do something beyond engineering, and I did an MBA. And of course, the bright lights of investment banking was the big lure in those days. People thought saw that as a way forward, and uh, I was no different. So. I, I did apply actually to an investment bank for a role, and uh, for a role of an, an investment analyst. And uh, when I went for the interview, they said to me, "Look, um, you know, we've just had an application from somebody who's immensely more experienced than you, um, which wouldn't have been hard because I had none." Right. And uh, and uh, and they said, "But look, we do actually have a um, have a have a role in in another part of our business. This this bank was part of a, a large conglomerate." Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, we've got an investment analyst role as a, uh, in the mining division of this particular group. Would you be interested? Well, look, I didn't know one thing from the other at that, that stage, and I thought that sounded like a good idea, and I, and I went and took the role. So that was how I got into the business. Uh, it was a bit of an accident in a sense, but it's, uh, it's turned out pretty well from there.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what's the difference, I suppose, especially if you studied civil engineering and then worked in, obviously, in finance? Um, how did you find that? Obviously, civil engineers is completely different to finance. Although you can, there's certain skills and certain skills that you uh, that you can acquire. How was that for you, though? Uh,
2: look, it, it was a, it was an interesting sort of a journey. I mean, it was a gradual process. I um, I found myself being increasingly involved in um, in in financial matters, in, in uh, contract management and cost control and things like that. And I, uh, having done the MBA, of course, I I was. Uh, was orientated I found that I was actually quite adept at, at financing but I also done a CPA along the way and I'm out now actually an FCPA as well so okay. um, I mean um, you know it wasn't a, it wasn't an overnight situation and and um, you know starting off in smaller companies and then graduating to larger companies I mean I learned an awful lot along the way and then formalized it with the CPA
1: yep yeah. and so how did your career develop then? Um, from obviously getting into the financing, uh, finance side of mining. How did your career develop?
2: Well, look, I, as I said, I started off as an investment analyst. Within a fairly short period, I ended up as a Director of Strategy and Investment for that group. And we built a fairly significant asset portfolio of mining properties. So my role there was sort of targeting um, and then executing various transactions. Now, that Went pear shaped after a time. And in fact, my director of investment and strategy turned to divestment and strategy. And, and we, we basically uh, divested the portfolio before the company was taken over. Now, the thing, well, the thing about that and the relevance of that was it gave me an awful lot of really very, very valuable insights that um, you wouldn't normally get in a situation. You tend to learn a fair bit more on the way down than you do on the way up. Yeah. And I went from that particular role to uh, working for one of the companies that I sold assets to. Uh, in a commercial management role and then moved into the into the CFO from there. Now, uh, you know over over the career I've had I started off um, You know as I say investment analyst I went to commercial manager. I've been to CFO I've had a chief operating officer role and now I'm, um, I'm the CEO of the company So it's been a uh, what do they say, you know a 30-year overnight success or something like that But yeah. it's been a very lengthy graduation but at each stage of the way uh, learning new skills and, and being able to apply them in the business. Looking back now, the one thing that I guess does sort of, um, you know, stand out from my career is that I got typecast fairly early on in the piece as somebody who was capable of sorting out very complex situations and in in challenging circumstances. And, I've actually spent most of my career working on projects outside of Australia so I've spent a good deal of time on, on things in Asia Pacific, so Papua New Guinea, Philippines, Chile and South America and more recently uh, in, in West Africa. So while I am an Australian the, the amount of uh, number of roles I've had in Australia have been fairly limited um, but you know that's given me a, a very interesting uh, and uh, insight into the business and, and a fairly global perspective, which I think is important in this day and age, given the nature of the mining business.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. So you've been with uh, Persius for about six years now, I believe. Uh, maybe well, seven.
2: That's not quite right. Oh, okay. actually,
1: I've,
2: been, I've been here at Perseus since uh, for nine years now. Okay. So, so I originally was uh, invited to join the company by the the chairman who I'd known from a, a previous role uh, as the CFO. And when he invited me to join, I, I looked at the company and thought, gee, that looks pretty interesting. It'll probably get taken over in a, in a year or two's time. That could be exciting. But uh, it didn't actually turn out like that. They had other plans for me, which I wasn't aware of at the time I joined. And uh, after a few years, they asked me to take on the CEO role, which I which I did. Now, yeah, that's been, that was a really interesting kind of a change because – Perseus is, you know, I, I quite often talk about it and characterise it as an accidental miner because it started as a junior exploration company, had immediate success. This was during the last uh, gold bull market. And um, I think in many respects, the, the people who started the company never really envisaged that it one day it would become an operating company. They, they thought it would be taken over and, and they'd move on with their exploration activities. Now, the share price ran so strongly, it was very heavily um, you know, promoted in those days um, that nobody, nobody could afford to take it over. And so we moved from being a junior explorer into, a, uh, into an operator in a fairly short period of time. And of course, you know, in doing that, we really weren't prepared for what came next. And, um, and I guess that was where I got involved in the exercise and had the challenge of turning the situation around from a sort of a, a, a hopeful, a mining hopeful, into a proper mining company. And, um, you know, it's been a bit of a journey, I have to admit. We've had plenty of challenges along the way. But we we have gone from being a single mine, single country exposure to now we have two operating mines, as you mentioned, one in Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire. And about a couple of weeks ago, we started building our third mine, which is also in Cote d'Ivoire. And uh, so we're now on a a journey that, um, you know, if we execute properly, which I expect we will, we will be producing around half a million ounces of gold a year at, at an 850 all in sight cost by uh, 2022. Right now we're producing uh, a touch under 300,000 at, at around $950 an ounce. But we will we'll take a step up when our third mine comes online, uh, producing first gold in December 2020.
1: Yeah. So what challenges have you faced? Especially, I suppose, when you, from the outset, when you obviously joined the company, they were an explorer and probably didn't envisage that they were gonna be an actual mining company. Obviously, you mentioned that that was a big, I suppose, a big big challenge. What challenges did you have? And, and I suppose for any exploration companies out there that maybe not looking at becoming a miner, but if the, if the right things are in place, they could, they, they could become a miner. So what challenges did you have to overcome?
2: Oh, look, uh, <laughs> there's almost too many to even mention. But, but look, to, to make that transition, the, you need basically five things to be successful as far as I can see. First of all, you have to have good physical assets. So you need decent ore bodies and infrastructure. You need, the second thing you need is a good human resource base. So you really need to have a good quality team of people around you who know how to execute. Third thing is you need funding and uh you know without funding you're not going anywhere fourth thing you need is is you need markets for your products and uh in the gold business of course the market isn't such a big issue because we are, we're a price taker it is what it is certainly in base metals and bulks it's a different proposition and the fourth thing that you need to be successful is you have got to have a social license to operate now you know the fact of the matter is that we in we in but perseus we're operating in foreign countries and uh we have to recognise that if we are not welcome in the in the community, not welcome by the community or the host country our government, then really we have absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter how good the assets are or the team of people. If they don't want us there, we're not there. Mm. So they're all things that we've had to work at, at at very hard along the way to to make sure that uh, we've been able to get our business going well. And I think I think we have done that. Now the other thing, I guess, if I had to sort of pin pinpoint. The biggest challenge I've had to had to deal with, it goes back to the, the, the point I made earlier that Perseus, when we started off as a junior explorer in a bull market, was over-promoted very heavily, and so and, and promises were made that were simply never going to be met. The biggest challenge I've had is to build the trust of our shareholders or of the market, and to uh, you know to earn their earn their trust and respect going forward. And we've done that progressively over a period of time, and we've done it by delivering outcomes that we promised. So putting consecutive good quarters of of uh, of production down being able to develop mines on time and on budget and basically starting to deliver a growth strategy that we articulated to the to the market many years ago you know it, they they say you know a reputation can be lost in a in a short time it takes a lifetime to rebuild it or whatever okay. but uh, you know um that that is the, that is very definitely the case and i think in our case that has been a real challenge um you know, we, I don't think uh, anyone ever sets out to do a, uh, a poor job, but we uh, we did let a lot of people down. But I'm very pleased to say that the things that we've done over the last four or five years has started to rebuild trust. And I think we can look to the future with some confidence.
1: Yeah. And obviously you can see that obviously on your results. Um, you mentioned obviously corporate social responsibility. And I think that is a really important point at the moment. It seems to be in the news quite a lot, especially in the mining industry. What's your sort of relationships with governments and the local communities in those particular jurisdictions that you're involved in? And I suppose what what have you learned and what's the best way forward if other companies are working in difficult jurisdictions?
2: What advice would you give people? Yeah, well, look, as far as we know, our social license to operate in both countries is very strong. And, and I say as far as we know, um, you know, you don't really know until you know uh, that, you know, that is that is an absolute truism the thing that we have have done and i think this is important is that a core value of our business is is doing what we say we're going to do and and that has been especially important in terms of dealing with the host countries the governments and the community we've gone there and we promised them certain outcomes and we've we've delivered on those on those promises so i think that you know if you look back over history particularly in in a lot of developing countries Um, Foreigners have come in there and promised the world and delivered very little. They've taken, you know, taken a lot out, but they haven't left a whole lot behind. And we've been very determined in the way that we've gone about the business to make sure that that there is a fair and equitable distribution of benefits that we generated to all of our stakeholders. So it's not just governments and, and host communities, but we would add to that employees, suppliers of goods and services. And of course, our funders as well, our debt and equity funders, they have to all benefit from what we're doing. There has to be a fair and equitable distribution of those benefits, and therein lies the challenge because what is fair and equitable but what we have learned is that if one group or another is getting more than what other people think is their fair share, then they'll get pretty unhappy about that. And we, you know, our, one of our roles is to make sure that, that we, we keep that balance as best we can. Now, it's not always within our control, but that's what we've got to work towards doing.
1: And what challenges have you had to overcome in both those obviously jurisdictions in Ghana and Côte
2: Oh, well, I guess, I guess the challenges, you know, they're very different, uh, you know, uh, Ghana, for instance, is a, is a former British colony. And, and when the British left there, they had very well uh, established, um, you know, systems of government, um, legal systems, et cetera, et cetera. And ones that, that we as Australians were very familiar with, given the British law. Um Côte d'Ivoire is a is a French colony, former French colony, and it's very French. I might add. I mean, um, it's almost as French as the French in many respects. But you know, part of that is that they do have a different um, a different legal system and a different approach to life. So, I mean, one of the things that we've had to try, had to get to grips with is the fact that first of all, there's a lot of unknown unknowns out there. There's a lot that we don't know. But we've had to learn to to adjust along the way. I mean, where, where we've seen um, in Ghana, for instance, over time, there has been a creep in the terms of the fiscal system. There has been a number of changes that have uh, been introduced since we, we started to uh, develop over there. Another thing that we've encountered in time was that Um, You know, their power system, like a lot of countries in Africa, you know, is not as robust as people thought it might be. Um, Ghana started off, or when we first went there, it looked like they were going to be having a very vibrant um, offshore oil and gas industry that was going to run the economy uh, very strongly. Now, it hasn't quite turned out the way people have hoped. and, And I guess that's led to a lot of pressures because you know, politicians and the like were making promises to their constituency that were hard to, deliver with, hard to deliver without the revenue from the oil industry. So as a consequence, they've looked at the mining industry, which has been there for a hundred odd years, and and that puts pressure on, on smaller companies like ourselves. So that, that's been a bit of a challenge. Um, Cote d'Ivoire has been a very different experience for us. I mean, when we well, I remember the first time I went to Cote d'Ivoire, it was a few months after a civil war had finished. And, uh, you know, it was a fairly uh, fairly scary place to be. But over the, the last six or so years, six or seven years, there's been a major shift in that country. And now it'd be one of the leading places, I would say, to invest in in, in Africa and their infrastructure, their understanding at the bureaucracy level is, uh, is very good. However, having said all that, I mean, um, you know, things do move slowly and, mm-hmm. uh, You know, the the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the commodity cycle and the political cycle, they very rarely match up. And, and, uh, you know, our investors quite often get very impatient for outcomes that we simply can't deliver because we're captive to the political system. And we must respect that. Uh, given that we are guests in their country so you get these sort of tensions between what one constituency wants to see and hear versus what another one is going to be be delivering and as i say we kind of sit in the middle of that and try and uh, try and uh, you know navigate our way through in a way that uh, keeps people as uh, as happy as we can possibly do
1: yeah so what's the future uh in for mining in those jurisdictions in Ghana and d'Ivoire? you've obviously been there for a while how do you see the future of mining in both those countries?
2: Oh, well, look, I think, I think the future is is particularly good. I mean, um, in Ghana, you know, it is a very, it's, it's had a very, very rich mineral endowment for, for many, many years and, uh, and uh, has been a, a leading mining jurisdiction. In fact, I gather that uh, Ghana has recently surpassed South Africa as the leading, you know, gold producer in Africa, for yeah. And, and and that will continue based on geological considerations. However, you know, in order to be able to attract investment capital, the government needs to be able to make an environment that investors are willing to to take risk in. I mean, what, what a lot of the countries kind of forget is that international investors have choices. And, um, you know, if, if things don't uh, look too good in, in their country, then there are plenty of other places around the world where capital will move to. So I think in Ghana's case, if they... If they make adjustments to their system to make it attractive to uh, miners, then I, I could see a very, very strong and uh, very, very productive mining sector for many, many years to come. And
1: how are they? How welcoming are they to new investment and companies coming into Ghana?
2: Oh, they're very welcoming. I mean, yeah. that's one of the that's one of the things about about uh, developing countries. They're usually extremely welcoming on the way in. And once you've invested your money, then you've got two choices, basically. You make it work or you leave and leave it behind. So, yeah. you know, the problem doesn't start until you're really invested. Uh, and and that's not, I'm not talking about the two countries we're involved in. I think that's a, a truism around the world. But but no, look, Ghana is very welcoming, as, is, as of course, Cote d'Ivoire. In fact, you know, I would say that my experience, my personal experience in Cote d'Ivoire has been as good as any place in the world. And I have worked in a lot of different places, as I mentioned earlier mm. in the in the um, you know they're, they're certainly um, very very welcoming they're very keen to develop the mining industry as a major piece of their economy going forward the thing that works in the mining industry's favor is that there's been very little systematic exploration of the country yet it is hugely geologically prospective and so a combination of prospectivity a welcoming government and a sensible set of um, mining legislations and tax legislation is is an excellent recipe for you know, for uh, the industry to go forward in, in, in a material way. Um, you know, the thing that, of course, that we've got to do is, 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 is recognise that there are differences and be patient and learn to adapt to, to different circumstances that may not exist in the countries that we come from. But I think both, I think both uh, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire are, are very good jurisdictions on a global basis in which to work. Um, we feel, you know, very, uh, very welcome in the country. We, we feel safe. Um, you know, and 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 that's not a statement that can be made about every country in Africa. Uh, so okay. you know, we're fairly happy with the way things are going at the moment.
1: Yes, certainly. And what's the outlook for Perseris Mining um, over, say, the next five or ten years? What What are your plans and what your strategies moving forward?
2: Well look what we want to do is to is to become a uh, or we'll, you know to to move on from on the current trajectory that we're on to be a uh, a very reliable mid tier gold miner going forward we've set ourselves the goal of being of producing around half a million ounces by two thousand and twenty two and as a starting point we'd like to We'd like to be able to sustain that level of production, generating a couple of hundred million dollars of free cash flow a year. So that that's our broad goal. I mean, I think at the moment we're exposed to two countries. I'd like us to probably have a third country in our, or assets in a third country just to give ourselves a, a slightly broader spread of risk. And, you know, I think a, a company like us, we could probably comfortably manage, say, um you know three to four to five operations simultaneously so you know over a five or six year period i'd like to see us grow from being um you know as we are at the moment two mines two countries to being you know four to five mines across three countries and uh producing um consistent levels of of cash that we can allocate to sustaining the business but also returning to our shareholders and giving our long-suffering shareholders a uh, you know, a, a dividend income to, to match the capital growth that we we are, are very confident of being able to deliver as well.
1: Yep. Yeah. you mentioned obviously um, working in another country, and I don't want to put you on the spot. Is there any particular countries that you've got you may have in mind?
2: Oh, uh, look, i would have to have to kill you if I don't do that, but. <laughs> okay. Uh, look, I mean, uh, our focus is West Africa, uh, very much so uh, yeah. at this particular juncture. Um, you know, that's where we've developed a, a fair bit of intellectual property on how to operate. And we think that we can leverage from that experience very successfully by staying in that general area. And, you know, the countries are, are fairly obvious that, um, you know, w- which would be attractive and, and uh you know we're looking at, at various things in all of those places people have said to me well you know would you be interested in east africa or south america or the like i mean it may well be that at some point we do consider those things but certainly not in the immediate future we see there are some very interesting opportunities close to home mm-hmm. if we were to move to, uh, you know to another uh, part of Africa or offshore, it introduces a couple of challenges. I mean, one is we start at the bottom of the pile in terms of knowing what the country's about and we've got to work our way up and become experienced. The other thing is that from a management perspective, managing Operations in multiple time zones is quite challenging unless you're large enough to be properly decentralised. Yeah. And as it is now, you know, we 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 spend a fair bit of time working with our people um, around the clock. You add a you know, say a South American time zone to the to the mix, and uh, and you know, whenever you speak to somebody, either you or that other person is going to be very tired. So, yeah. look, I think the the idea of spreading around the globe is fine if you're a Rio Tinto or a BHP. I don't think it's the right. Uh, move for, for uh, Perseus in the foreseeable future. We've got enough on our plate right now. We can see our path forward very clearly to turning ourselves into a very reliable, consistent mid tier gold producer, and that's what we're very focused on doing.
1: Yeah. And lastly, what advice would you give someone that's looking to sort of develop or explore in Ghana or Cultivar or sort of any other countries in West Africa? What, what would you say the main challenges are?
2: Oh, well, look, there's a lot of challenges, but the advice that I would give give people looking to go to to those countries is to go in there and be aware that things are going to be different to work, probably, where you've come from, and be prepared to, you know, to learn and listen. Don't go in there assuming that you, you, you know everything, because, frankly, you probably don't. Even though just because something works in one jurisdiction doesn't necessarily mean it works where you're going to and i I guess the other thing the final thing i would I would say to people is that you know resilience is unbelievably important as is integrity and uh you know without those two characteristics you are going to find yourself in in challenging times and uh and you know it could end in tears. But um, look, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from uh, from going in. You don't learn the lessons overnight. It does come, you know, with with time and experience. And uh, hopefully, you can learn those without uh, without too many uh, too many bruises to tell yeah. the story.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, I appreciate your time, uh, Jeff, for taking the time to do this podcast. Um, if anyone wants to uh, contact you or reach out to you and ask for some advice, um, how can they go about doing that?
2: Well, uh, I guess the best, the easiest way is to is to contact by email. We do travel quite a lot, so we're not always in the time zone necessarily. But um, you know, my email address is on the on the bottom of uh, every announcement that goes out. Yeah. So I'd urge people to check our announcements as they come to the market, and you, and there'll be a set of contacts at the bottom of that, and and feel free to to make contact with either myself or our head of uh, business development and investor relations, Andrew Grove, who. Uh, who, who would be more than happy to uh, to 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 talk to people?
1: Yeah, and are you in, on any social media platforms at all?
2: Uh, no. no, actually, okay. I'm, <laughs> a bit of NFL, I've got to say, uh, as far as that's concerned. So uh, yeah, coming up.
1: Yeah, no worries. Alternatively, if you want to um, ask Jeff any questions, you can contact myself uh, via email, or even uh, well, preferably via email, which is rob at mining dot org, and I can pass that message on to Jeff. Um, well, thank you again for listening. hope you really enjoyed this podcast. Um, and until next time, happy mining.
0: Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.